0: Okay, so I'm just uh, waiting another moment to see if we can get some more people in, um, and that's that. Um, what else? While well, we're starting, so we have the um, the final assignment due in about three weeks, so we're going to today go over a little bit of that, um, and go from there. Uh, and then finish off the Prince of Homburg. You know, and we'll also be working on. Um, yeah, well, that's about it. And then, then under the gaslight will be, for for Monday. Okay. Good. So. We have eight people, so it's a little more than half the class. Um, Alright. So let's. Let's start off because we're about four minutes into class time. Um, so sorry about posting the link late. I posted it in the wrong place, and that's I didn't realize I had done that until about two minutes before class started. So that's that's what happened there. Um, and we'll, I'll try and uh, try and make up some of that time. So I'll pull up the syllabus here, and now the next project is the research paper, um, which is due on the 7th, so a little more than three weeks. And uh, it's a six to eight page thesis paper, kind of a traditional research paper, that asks you to use three sources. And we're going to next week start getting into the sources, but the, the three graded aspects of the paper are the thesis the sources and how you use them, and then the support for the thesis, which includes the the structure of the paper, and does each paragraph have its own kind of argument and contribute to the thesis overall? And so that is going to be the the main uh, design of the paper. Um, and what we're going to do today is start with looking at uh, at thesis writing and um, you know, and go from there. And, yeah. So, let me... A
1: que- sure. question. When mm-hmm. you say this is going to be our final project, do you mean it's going to act as our final? Or are we still going to have a final? No, you still have
0: the final. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, there is a final on... The date is posted on um, on the NetID site. And... We will, I'll get you some over the the break, kind of send you the Thanksgiving break, send you off a, a study guide, kind of a study guide for the, the final itself. Okay. Okay, good. Um... Let's, uh, let's get into it. Let me... Okay. Can people see the, uh, the screen? Yes. Okay, good. So, thesis statement. Um, So, these are, rhetorically, thesis statements are important because they clarify for the reader the controlling idea of the paper. Without a clear thesis, the reader may lose patience because he or she doesn't see the point. Um, So, this should be pretty obvious. It's the idea that, you know, you you need to write... um, You need to, in your thesis, kind of cover the topic, right? So then your paper is going to relate back to that topic. Uh, For you as the writer, when you're writing, the thesis should serve as an anchor. So that everything you're writing kind of falls under the purview of the topic outlined in your thesis. So this doesn't mean that your initial thesis when writing, that is the thesis that you uh, devise when Starting your paper, starting the first draft of your paper, needs to be the same thesis. In the initial phase of writing this paper, the thesis is going to be um, basically a a statement, a research statement, what you want to research on what topic, and um, in what direction do you want to go in. The thesis is probably over the course of the the next few weeks going to change pretty dramatically. Right. It's going to go from um, maybe something very vague to something specific. It might go from something sp- specific to something else based upon the research you've done. And so the idea is that you want um, the thesis to, to limit, let's say, your research to help you out. And starting with a kind of a vague general thesis is a really great way to do that. Um, but when you get to the final thesis, you do want to avoid these errors, right? You, you can't in the final paper hand in a thesis that's too vague, broad, unwieldy. I mean, you, you can do this, but it's not going to reflect well on your grade. Um, and, a, a thesis, you know, so instead of having something that's very broad, like let's say, um, the, the, uh, the, the South, um, fought the Civil War for purposes of secession, right? Like that's that's very vague or very broad. Um, that is too broad a statement for a six to eight page paper, and it's going to um, involve you stating as a lot of facts in in very uh, succinct in in a very succinct way which isn't going to be great for the paper, right? You, you're just going to be um, loading a ton of factual information in there. So in that case, it's going to be yeah, far too broad. If you're looking at the Prince of Hamburg and you say the, the Prince of Hamburg is about um, romantic notions of battle, that's also too broad. What romantic notions of battle? What is it saying about these romantic notions of battle? What is your reading? Of romantic notions of battle. Is it questioning them? How is it questioning them? Is it celebrating them? How is it celebrating them? Um, on the other hand, if the thesis is too narrow or factual, then it can't be developed. So if your thesis is uh, the Prince of Homburg is about um, uh, the 17th century battle against the Swedish empire, well that's a factual claim and it's accurate but you know, it, it's kind of hard to develop, right? Because it's just sort of true. It's just stated directly. Um, also, the Prince of Hamburg is a play that borrows from, you know, the Romantic tradition. That's that's kind of, um, that's also kind of factual, <laughs> almost. I mean, the, the, the um, Von Kleiss is basically saying that. However, if you're saying that, um, in the scene where Natalie petitions the elector to free Humburg, um, her means of convincing the elector to free Humburg involves many questions revealing the questioning nature of the play, or something like that, where you're just talking about the few questions Natalie asks the elector, then your thesis might be too narrow. You know, you're you're only talking about that. Um it seems more like more likely that the questions that Natalie asks the Elector are evidence of a um, they're, they're evidence of a thesis, right? They're the facts of the play that support an idea about maybe questioning the the Romantic era values that the play might support or might question. So you want to kind of hit the sweet spot between these um, purpose statements. So in this play, I will discuss romantic notions of battle and statehood. That's a purpose statement. It's what the topic is. You can write a purpose statement in your in your your opening paragraph or your opening page of your paper. That's fine, but it isn't a claim. A claim makes a specific. Uh, Falsifiable statement about what you're writing about Um, Falsifiable just means it can be disproven. So you might say that the Prince of Homburg Demonstrates that the romantic notions of the self are merely fantastical and um, cannot survive the the, you know the ap- the actual application of statehood? Actually, that's kind of a crappy claim. What if I said instead that romantic notions of statehood, while celebrated um, by the by von Kleist in his play The Prince of Hamburg, also reveal that those same notions are only accessible to a privileged few operating the state, right? That's a falsifiable claim because you could say, well, actually that's accessible to everyone or it's universally accessible uh, and and somebody can look through the play and show how it's universally accessible. Or you could say, well, actually it isn't universally accessible, those values. We can look through the play and show how um, only a small group of people are actually involved in this discussion or even have access to the elector to, to make that type of claim. So that would be the difference between a purpose statement, which is kind of the topic, and a claim, which is something that is falsifiable. Uh, Yeah, you also don't want to write observations. This is a play about, you know, this is a, the the Prince of Hamburg is a romantic drama. Um, Nobody's going to debate debate that, right? Um, Unless you phrase it in such a way in which it can be debated. I mean, I think it would be much more debatable to say, the Prince of Homburg is not a romantic genre, genre drama. <laughs> the Prince of Homburg is not a romantic drama. It eschews romantic era values in favor of the enlightenment value of the um, striving individual or something like that. That would be much more of a debatable claim. But if you're just writing observations, you know, things that are true, Remember the standard of falsifiability. Um, you know, this is a play about the Prince of Homburg. Is uh, you know, is not a particularly interesting claim um, because there's no standard by which you can falsify it. You look, you know, other than you could look at the play and see if the prince is in it or not. Okay. Um, I don't think that slides very helpful. So let's move on. Okay, refining the thesis statement. Using the five uh, W's and H, so these are the the five W's and H. obviously these are the kind of the interview questions who what, where, when, why, and how. Um, you know th- this is kind of stuff from elementary school. Um, but it is a uh, it is a good test to see how robust your thesis is. So here's a draft thesis and this is again what I, I advise you to do, is come up with like a level one thesis or a draft thesis, which is going to be kind of a crappy thesis, but at least gets you focused on a particular topic and a particular work. Here's the draft thesis. Many people think that sewing is not an art form, but I do. That's crappy for many reasons. Um, It's uh, really vague as to what art form means, right? So when we go back to the thesis is too vague or broad, it's too vague. We don't know what art form means. Um, many people think sewing is not an art form. Uh, well, it it's kind of, um, it's not particularly clear as to what that means, you know, um, what that means by many people, right? We don't know what era they're talking about. Um, we don't know what kind of social situation is being discussed. It's just human beings in the world at some point in time or at all points in time, think that sewing is something that is not particularly well-defined, but this writer thinks that sewing at all times by all people is this thing that isn't particularly well-defined as you could see that it, it falls apart immediately. However, the benefits of writing a draft thesis is we now have to find the term art form. We now have to define many people, which means this writer now has to look at the history of sewing and how it changes over time and what actually he or she means by art form, right? And so what kind of sewing becomes the first question, which? Um, which kind of sewing? Uh, embroidery, quilting, sewing in a hair weave, making clothes—all of these things this person is apparently considering sewing. So you now can look into a specific area. Um, you know some other questions. Uh, when you know when are we looking there? Um, apparently, we're not going to look at all time, but the 20th century quilts. So this disciplines things. This person is looking at. All of these things embroidery, quilting, sewing, making clothes what they discovered is that this question becomes very interesting when you narrow down on quilts. So we've gone from sewing to quilts, we've gone from vague to specific. Maybe it's too narrow, maybe not, but we can stay at the level of sewing, right? Um, Also, 20th century quilts. Maybe that's too narrow. Um, Actually, maybe it's not too narrow, maybe that's still too broad but it is better than the Traff thesis, right? We've zoomed in. Um, And there's also a position that's beginning to to be taken, right? Uh, And a bit of history that's being incorporated. Um, You know, so you have uh, quilts that are designed today, 21st century, kind of artistic, but the 20th century quilts, the thing that this person is zooming in on, this hypothetical person, uh, we have a problem of something being utilitarian, not artistic. So now we're getting to this idea, or a better definition, of um, art form, right? Art form is something that is not purely utilitarian. Utilitarian means it's it's just made for a use, just a purpose. Not for an aesthetic pleasure or anything like that, but in this case, quilts would be made to keep you warm and nothing else, right? Um this person is zooming in, not only in time, but in place. Uh, the South, so Southern quilting culture. I you know, don't know how much of a thing that is, but that makes things easier. Um, how How do I know? Um, well, we have a source, right? So we begin to, to bring in sources. We begin to bring in evidence of this sort of utilitarian versus artistic divide in quilting. Um, some other questions, what is meant by art form? You know, we, we had utilitarian versus artistic, and now we're going to break that down more. Anything that is an artistic component, such as aesthetic judgment, attention to color pattern, design technique, etc. So So um, art form is now something that people consider the aesthetic qualities of, let's say the pattern, and not just, does this quilt work to keep me warm? So, at a certain point, people are going to start talking about um, uh, how a quilt looks how um how its pattern is. You could see here um, everyday use the primitive quilts that they had sewn uh, and the idea is that the quilts are now seen as a traditional art form so you know, this this is a turning point anyway, this Alice Walker story is a turning point in which quilting goes from utilitarian to having an aesthetic standard, something we can judge. Right? Um, and this is put up for question here, right? The, and, and a position is being taken. Drawing an analogy between quilts and other kinds of low art, such as graffiti and murals, because they're produced by the lower class and have less value, um, because of this idea that they're made by women for the home, and um, kind of works made for the home are considered less artistically valuable than than maybe um, works uh, that you know works that uh, that patrons pay for, right? You know, when you have like the banking families of Italy paying for something that seems to be more valued than kind of works made by women at home on a smaller scale. Um, and so this author is now taking a, a position vis-a-vis the artwork. Uh, it is quilts that are beginning in the 20th, 20th and 21st century to be seen apart from the utilitarian use and this person is making the claim or beginning to dust off the claim that it's really an issue of class, that um, class and, and maybe gender, you can argue, that quilts are not recognized as having aesthetic value. And sometime in the 20th or 21st century, uh, people are beginning to evaluate quilts as having an aesthetic value. The question remains there is, why are people beginning to do that? Um, And we get this question, why? Why should quilting be considered an art form? Um, And you get this kind of definition here of women are able to take whatever resources available and create items of beauty. uh, And then also, museums now display these old quilts. So there's this point in time when... Um, museums known for displaying, you know, the, the great works of art or whatnot, are now also including quilts in this collection, and so this is an aspect to explore for the thesis as well. Um, at, at what point or why are museums beginning to do this, or is it that we're saying once a museum does something, once an art item is given the context of a museum, it's now considered of aesthetic value? to be judged aesthetically these are all things a claim can bring out or explore but it begins by asking these questions about a super crappy thesis that this person does not intend to hand in for for grading for review or for insight right and so that's kind of where you guys should start or want to start there then then yep so then um the, the this person starts to revise the thesis uh, after writing or before writing, or even during writing, you know, during writing the paper. The thesis can change. So like painting, quilting involves aesthetic judgment, requires artistic still, and generates an emotional response. Okay, this is fine. I would say this thesis is getting there. It's certainly better than the initial one. It could um uh It could possibly be a little more narrow, and it could also give you kind of a because, right? Um, Quilting involves all of these things because X, Y, or Z. What's great about this, this thesis, even as it's something that this person is working with, is it has a thesis map in it. And what that is is the thesis is designed in such a way that you can imagine the structure of the paper just by reading the thesis the quilting involves aesthetic judgment part one of the paper is probably going to be about aesthetic judgment part two of the paper is probably going to be about it requires artistic skill right about the skill level or the the greater skill level that quilt makers have acquired in, in the 20th and then into the 21st century um, and then Reception theory, it generates an emotional response. How are people seeing this? Um, that's probably going to be the last section of the paper. And so you have X, Y, and Z. Right? Quilting involves X, Y, and Z. And so the paper then, the first two pages are X, the next two pages are Y, the last two pages are Z. Right? that That's what's meant by a thesis map. And it guides you there. That isn't to say you were required to do a thesis map. However, it makes it a lot easier and a lot more comfortable for your reader to understand your paper and understand where it's going if you do use a thesis map. Here's a revised thesis without that. Um, and this this working thesis is fine. Quilting association with poor women in the South has led some quilting's association with poor women in the South has led some to undervalue the artistic talent required to produce a quilt. That's a perfectly good thesis. It's actually pretty solid. It tells you um, it tells you something that could be falsifiable. The you know that the undervaluing the artistic talent is what um, is why. Excuse me. Um, the fact that poor women in the South were doing this explains why a perfectly wonderful artistic medium has been ignored. Right. So it, it, t- it gives you a position. You can argue against that position. You could say quilting hasn't been ignored or there's other reasons why quilting has been undervalued. Maybe it doesn't require as much skill, so it's not appreciated. Whatever. You can oppose that claim with your own you know, or with a, with a separate claim. So that's why that revised thesis also has a lot of value. Now, it doesn't have a thesis map. That's okay. But you might want to explain then in the, the larger opening paragraph or opening paragraphs what you're going to be planning to do throughout the paper, just so we have a, a preview of, of what's going to happen. All right. And I should be back in a second. Okay. And here I am. Okay. Um, good one second. This thing. Here we are. Okay. It wasn't working too well. All right, so I know that was a lot. Uh, any questions so far about any of that? Probably, I imagine not right now. You have any questions since you've just finished one assignment and <laughs> I, I would be surprised if anybody has given any kind of real consideration to their paper. Um, but if you do have questions, just just let me know. And um, obviously, we'll be covering this again. Uh, Okay. But let's jump into um, the Prince of Hamburg. And I want to start by reviewing a scene between Hamburg, uh, excuse me, between the Elector and Natalie. Um, And let me gear that up here. Only the discipline of care. And we're gonna watch a little bit of a scene, about three minutes. And what I want to attend to in this scene is what is Natalie's argument for Humburg's release, and um, what what is surprising or convincing to the elector? Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn off the sound. Because it apparently it it reverbs and is very annoying, Um, so if you have a problem or can't hear it, please type in the chat. I'll try and look at the chat to make sure. All right. So let's go through that. So what kind of uh, what reasons does Natalie present to the elector well, What does she what does she say because the elector starts off saying, you know, I'm not thinking of myself But of my country see she says your country won't be harmed by showing mercy Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But then she tells the elector um, about what the prince does and what is what is so surprising to him about this information So what what actually does she tell the prince?
1: I just know whatever she says gets him basically pardoned.
0: Okay, yeah. So she, the story she, says is she tells is she tells the elector that the prince came to her and begged for mercy, right? You know, and she's kind of surprised by this that um, that begging, you know, that him being arrested or tried on his life is not really what causes causes him to fall so low. Um, what's really, what's really surprising to him is that the Prince of Homburg has begged for his life. Um, he's crushed, deprived of will. And when the Prince realizes this, that this kind of great and glorious man has been, been crushed, he agrees to pardon the Prince. So long as the Prince can write a sentence saying that the, um, the sentence he's received is unjust, just so long as the prince can write something saying that he thinks the sentence is unjust. So what do we make of that? What do we make of the argument that gets him off is that the prince has been reduced to begging for his life,
1: Well, I think that's really interesting because you would think if he was going to go and beg anyone for his life, it wouldn't be Natalie. It would be the elector. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that he kind of went and like groveled to the woman that he loves after putting on this like huge facade of like, oh, I'm a hero. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. the victor. It kind of shows that he's like realizing that he messed up, (laughs) I guess. And the elector, I think that's what he was trying to do is, like, make him see that, like, he messed up.
0: Yeah, I, I think – so we have a a few factors there. I think that the elector wants him to see he messed up. And and more than that, I think the elector's like, like, we, we need a law, right? We, we, we can't just have people, you know, running in and out of jail. We, we need a law. I need to do things – for the state, not just for, for my sympathies. Um, however, that all goes by the wayside. Once he realizes the Prince is acting in what seems to be an undignified way, But right? It's almost like the, and, and the elector seems surprised by this and the way he's playing and the way it's written. It seems kind of shocking that the Prince of Hamburg would, would act lowly, right? This is not, you know, this is not how a person should face death. Um, after all, the Prince of Hamburg is risking death for his elector anytime he goes into battle, right? I mean, that's that's the idea. You get elevated to this position and you receive the glory that this position can can offer by willing to risk death. And so it seems like the, uh, it seems like by, by not living up to that expectation, by kind of acting in a way that's somewhat considered cowardice, possibly, um, it's considered certainly lowly, right? He even says that brought to this low state, uh, uh, the elector says, um, and even Natalie says, you know, she, she has the, uh, I, I'm merely a woman, but even I wouldn't. Uh, even if I were to face death, I would not want to act like this. Um, those factors seem to indicate that what is is really shocking to these people is that uh, that the individual um, that they thought they had here is being kind of destroyed by by the rule of law. Right, the rule of law is not matching inside and outside. The, you know the, the romantic person the romantic sense of the person is not rising to the occasion to meet the necessity of the law
1: yeah the the fact that he compared himself to caesar like even caesar <laughs> died dignified you know like yeah. he didn't you know a to brutus but he, he didn't um you know whine or beg for his life Mm -hmm. he was just kind of like okay
0: yeah good yeah yeah go ahead i'm sorry
2: i was just gonna say that i feel like it kind of almost reads as if like the play is trying to say that this obedience of law kind of trumps this romantic notion in a sense because he is like he is this ultimate romantic character but Mm -hmm. You know, once he is faced with the ultimate law of losing his life or not obeying the rules or whatever, he he is no longer that romantic character. He kind of throws that all away just to not have to face the law, basically. Um, I think that's interesting. and I think that's almost why the elector lets him off. It's like showing that he's going to be obedient from now on because he's,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, he's been brought to this low state. His pride is gone. He's not going to be this rebel anymore. Mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think there, there's a conflict or an open question about the relationship between the individual and the law that you're, you're bringing up, Kimberly, um, and uh, you know, and it's really hard to parse, right? Because I, I think the elector wants the has a kind of rom- either romantic or enlightenment idea of the law that it's going to you know bring the state together and do these great things. Um However, there's a lot of arguments that come come at the elector that people bring to the elector about the prince, that um, you know that, that you shouldn't do this for these these other reasons, that there's more than just the law. But there is still this um, there's still this kind of idea or this elevated idea of the state, of this kind of uh, greater state. There's a, a quote I'm trying to find it here from Hegel that I, I wrote down in my notes about this. Um, and it's kind of like the, and I'm, I'm not finding the quote, but Kimberly, you like prompted it perfectly and now I can't find it, but it's something along the lines of, here it is, um, that Hegel says, the the state is the ethical health of a people preserved. So it's almost as if the, the um, that, people acting ethically creates the state and then the state helps ensure cyclically that the people are living kind of ethically healthy, Um, that there's this kind of relationship between the people and the state. Um, But there's still this kind of concern of, you know, who, who is engineering that? And that seems to be going on here. Um, I wanted to show the clip towards the end. When uh, everybody runs in and they sort of make this argument about, um, they start the generals start to argue for the prince's life to the elector, and this is after the prince has accepted his fate. Right? The prince learns the news from Natalie, he realizes that he's kind of supplemented himself, and he decides that he is going to accept his fate. Right? He's going to accept. Um, what he's been destined to do. And he makes a big deal of this. He goes to the graveyard and looks at his grave. And, you know, he does all the kind of like um, uh, romantic stuff. Uh, But towards the end, we have the regiments come in. And um, we have uh, uh, Kotwitz, the older man, who, um, who makes kind of an argument towards the elector. And does anybody remember what his arguments were in the second-to-last scene?
2: Uh, Is this the one who uh, defends him, like also continues to defend him and says that, he basically says that uh, victory is more important than anything else in battle specifically, and that's sort of his defense for Prince Homburg, because he won the battle, so he shouldn't be punished. Basically,
0: mm-hmm. yep that that's certainly one of his arguments. Yeah, and that's um, that's one of his arguments. Yeah, is that he won the battle, um, and and he is so basically his three arguments, and that's I think that's the first one. He says basically he's won the battle. The second one argument he makes is. Um, this whole thing about the higher law, well, you know, Elector, it's actually all coming from you, right? Uh, you, if you want to liberate the prince, liberate the prince. Um, and if you don't, you know, you could cause a problem amongst the soldiers. So, you know, like you're saying, Kimberly, when you win a battle, you know, take that as a win. Um, and, if you kind of punish people who do that on technicalities, uh, it might lead to kind of a, a revolution amongst the soldiers. He says, don't let, don't let every fire that burns within a soldier's breast become a conflagration. Um, so again, you know, it's like it's coming from you. Understand the situation you're in. But he also says, um, Kotswitz says that his, this is kind of his, his second argument is that uh furthermore we need to obey the rule of instinct and instinct is a law that, that advances us that it's not just about this kind of stuff cut in stone that the the things that drive the the individual the things that pushes humburg towards his victory that instinct that that nature is also uh should be incorporated into the law um and that that needs to be considered when making these decisions. And so, yeah, th- those are all kind of arguments that he brings forward. Um, and and then uh, we have, uh, I believe his name is Hohenwitz, Hosenwitz, I, the older man who is also friends with Homburg and is kind of constantly telling him to p- please write down the marching orders um, he makes an argument, too. And what is his argument? I'm going to get his name up. <laughs>
2: that it's, uh, he makes the argument that it's really actually all, in fact, the elector's fault. Mm-hmm. Like he's the one who's guilt, guilty for all of it, for orig- initially playing the trick that has distracted Prince Homburg throughout this entire play. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so that, yeah, exactly. So it, it ends up being... That um, the prince himself has, excuse me, the elector himself has caused this this problem. Um, trying to bring up the bring bring up the cast list so I could get the guy's name right. Um, Hohenzollern. That's his name. There we go. Count Hohenzollern. Um. Yeah. And so you have a few open arguments here about kind of the, the nature of law and the nature of the state in conflict with um, these other considerations, right? There's this um, entirely objective law and we should all obey it and it needs to be strict and enforced for everyone equally. However, there's some problems with this that, um, that these different arguments bring out. Um, you know, there is the fact that it, well, you know, it's actually kind of enforced by someone, right? There's this natural law idea that there's just law in the world and we need to kind of find it. Um, but there's also, you know, somebody who kind of or, or this other idea, there's somebody who makes it up, right? A positivistic idea. Somebody makes this up and everybody has to follow it because someone makes it up um, you know and we have to consider kind of practical things how are people going to behave if we follow this to the fullest extent and there's this other idea this other open idea of the the romantic individual of just the individual who's striving for something higher how does that individual fit into these kind of discourses about the, the state and governance and objectivity, right? I mean, the prince, he's living in a purely subjective world. I mean, the, the film itself, it seems to be kind of dreamlike um, in the way the prince observes the world. And even in the end, it clearly ends on a moment of fantasy, where we see the prince of Hamburg kind of stepping out of himself and recognizing a sort of fantastical elements that he's just experienced. Um, And so I think that's kind of why I brought this play up, is I think it does deal with this movement from kind of enlightenment values to romantic values, but it leaves a lot of these questions open. It isn't really sure what to do with the conflict between the individual and the state, um, you know, or between... The, the objective and the subjective right These things are kind of in conflict and possibly always in conflict. And I think that is kind of what what makes this play particularly interesting. So any other um, closing statements before we go today? Oh I'm sorry Sonia I missed your comment um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, Sonya. He's going between dream, a dream and reality, right? And it, it seems to be occasionally reality hits him in the face. And he sort of says that, right? He sort of says that he's he's kind of being pulled down. Any other comments or responses? All right. If not, we are certainly over time now two minutes over and i will let you go and i'll stay on this uh chat for for office hours if anybody needs to to talk thank you have a good weekend too thank you
2: thank you have a good weekend
0: you too